slaves, submission, and homosexuality. That ought to get your attention. You know, as I've been preparing this message, and especially as I've watched the events of the last couple of weeks, I realize how much trouble it could get me into. You realize? Within a very short period of time, this could be a criminal message. could be worthy of charges. could be worthy of a lawsuit. And the days are not far ahead when that, I fear, is going to be a reality. But... As you notice, I'm going to be speaking about homosexuality, but more. So if you think that I am here to make a certain small segment of the population angry, I guarantee by the time I'm done, you'll all be mad. (laughs) So so this is not a, a partial message in that regard. I did observe the Chick-fil-A phenomena a week or so ago. Even bought some Chick-fil-A, if I need to confess. But uh, this message was decided in my mind before that incident ever occurred. So it's not really a Chick-fil-A sermon uh, as such. And it's not my primary concern, although... I must confess I'm distressed. I'm distressed by the bold and brassy attack that some are now feeling empowered to wage against Christians who simply choose to hold to their values, biblical values. And I'm distressed by the fact that there are all too many Christians who seem rather passive and unconcerned, as though what's the big deal? That really troubles me. But it's not an attack on homosexuality alone. This message, however, does hold to the biblical declaration that homosexuality is sin, period, exclamation mark. It's just that simple. The Bible declares it to be sin. And I'm going to focus on the way in which the Scriptures have been used and abused by the homosexual community and others. So let's talk about suppressing the truth. That should be a familiar sounding thing. Incidentally, I am not trying to add to or subtract from Tom's uh, excellent messages on Romans chapter 1. Uh, I am simply trying to bring into focus a serious issue that I think all of us as Christians must come to terms with. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, says that there are those who suppress the truth in or by their unrighteousness. So I want to focus on the way in which the truth is being suppressed on the in this area of homosexuality uh, and by that movement how God's Word is being suppressed. I was tempted to go much further down another trail, and and, uh, this message has sort of taken shape in a different way than I initially expected. But I do need to make one uh, comment about the suppression of the truth. I believe that homosexuality can be proven to be not only sinful, but harmful. 
in virtually every area of investigation. Every area. I am not resorting to the scriptures because that is my only line of, of attack. It's not, my friends. There are clear lines of evidence that are being suppressed. Did you notice in the last several weeks, for example, the, the very extensive survey and report that was done regarding the impact of homosexual families on the children? Did you notice that report? <clears throat> because that man has tenure, he will probably not lose his job, although he has certainly been attacked. Men who have done similar works, who did not have tenure, have lost their jobs. For that simple bit of scholarship, finding truth that does not agree with a particular sentiment may put one in harm's way, occupationally uh, speaking. I would suggest that if you pursued the subject of the impact of homosexuality on crime, suicide, murder, etc., if you looked at it in its impact on society, and in particular the family, if you looked at it in terms of medical statistics, the movement is seeking to suppress that. They're even seeking to remove terms which are commonly understood and commonly recognized in the medical world. By the way, I haven't consulted with anybody here on that point. But... They are using those terms and seeking to remove those terms from medical language and textbooks. So I say to you, my friends, the truth is being suppressed. And if we were to pursue biblical truth into other areas, we would find that they only support what the Scripture says. So I am convinced that the Scriptures are right and that other data actually supports that as well. Okay, let's talk about the suppression of the truth of God's Word. That's good, safe ground for a preacher to be on, so let's talk about what the Bible says. As I look at the at the current uh, movement within homosexuality, and I do not profess to be uh, an expert in that area, but as I look, there are two major fronts on which attack is being made against the Word of God. Two basic approaches. One is what I would call the indirect reinterpretation mode. That's where you look at the biblical text, like Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, and the Levitical text that forbid uh, same-sex and, and so on, when you look at those, and basically what they say is, those texts really don't say what they clearly seem to say. They say something else. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were friendly folks, and all they wanted to know was just to get to know these strangers and extend their, their hospitality to them. Hogwash. But but that's that's the line of argument. If you are dealing with people... On the basis of Scripture, expect them to reinterpret literally every text that calls homosexuality sin. The second is much more blatant. I debated with myself whether to name names, and I finally opted that I would. If you have not seen the video by Dan Savage, don't look at it. It is the most obscene, blasphemous thing I have ever seen on YouTube. 
and I don't usually go there, but he is speaking to a group of high school journalists. And he uses language and he speaks of God's word in terms that are, that are nothing less than blasphemy. And, and, and sometimes I think that the boldness and the arrogance with which that takes place somehow disarms Christians and they don't know how to handle it. Now in that context, many of the, of the young people who were Christians uh, walked out and that's probably the appropriate thing to do in that setting. If you look at scripture, and if you look at my manuscript when it's in print, you will see that there are many texts which tell us that one of the characteristics of false teachers is that they are arrogant. They speak with the greatest of confidence. I must confess that I love that statement back of the Old Testament which says, Let not him who puts his armor on boast as him who takes it off. It's one thing to talk about how well you're going to do. It's a really different thing to talk about how well you did do. You can speak with confidence and arrogance. It doesn't mean you are right. As a matter of fact, when you look at Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, remember he says, if they come, if they abuse you, if they slap you on the face, you love it. And Paul says, but I come to you in weakness. We do not need to come in harshness and severity and anger anger, to present the truth of God. And I do not think it furthers the cause when we do. Now, let's move to the issue of slavery because that's, that's one of the big factors. It certainly was huge in Savage's uh, savage attack on the Bible and Christianity. The argument goes basically like this. We all know that slavery is sin. But when you look at the Bible, it does not call slavery sin, and it does not resist it or oppose it as though it were sin. If the Bible gets such a simple matter as slavery wrong, then how can we trust the Bible in any other area, especially, Savage's words, the complex issues of human sexuality. If God gets it wrong on slavery, then how do we know God gets it right on anything? That's the argument that is being opposed by the aggressive side of the movement. I have some responses here, and I just put in, in small print. I have 21 of them written down. I won't, I won't bother you with all of them, but let me, uh, let me just make a few comments about slavery. One, we are all God's slaves. We may not admit it, but we are. And, and I say all, meaning all. There may be all kinds of discussion about Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, but it speaks of false teachers as denying the master who bought them. Does that not say to you that even unbelievers belong to God in that sense? They're slaves. Now, they may rebel against their master as they are doing. It doesn't mean they're any the less slaves to him in some sense. Two, when you look at the term slave in the Bible, it is a term that is happily embraced by spiritual Christians. Is it not? 
Paul speaks of himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. He speaks of Timothy as his fellow slave. That's a, that's a statement of honor, not dishonor. Why would you use something so horribly terrible as the term to describe a believer in Jesus Christ? Thirdly, I have a little side note here. Isn't it interesting that the great offense is a matter of history? In other words, it's very easy to get angry about what slave owners did in America in years gone by. And and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm simply saying, what can people do about that today? It's kind of a safe place to get angry about something in the past because... There's nothing that you're really obliged to do necessarily in the future. And yet, this comes to my next point here, and yet the freedom of a woman to kill her unborn child is embraced as the opposite of slavery with no regard for the life of that child. What kind of talk is that? If you want to get excited about some injustice, why not get excited about and for the unborn child. But somehow to get excited about the mother's right to take its life, I can't follow that that logic. Also, when you read the Bible carefully, you will see that it very much has provisions for protection and even provisions to remove yourself from slavery. Is that not right? If I were going to be a slave anywhere in the world... In ancient times, I'd want to be one in Israel, folks. God had provisions and protections for those slaves. And by the way, do you notice in the Old Testament, runaway slaves are not to be returned to their masters. I would guess that there were a lot of slaves in Israel. Because it was the best place for a slave to be. I would also venture a guess that that slavery which drove them to Israel may have been the instrument by which they came to faith in the God of Israel. Interesting that uh, Savage and others will shake their fist at, at Christians who held up their Bibles in support of slavery. Somehow forget it was Christians like William Wilberforce who resisted and opposed it. Hypocrisy reigns. Well, it's clear, is it not? God wasn't as fast and furious, pardon the expression, about slavery as we might be. Isn't that what it comes down to? God may not have chosen to make such an issue of slavery as some of us might have preferred. That's what we see, at least that's what I see when I look at the uh, Scriptures. But is it not interesting that God's slowness to act, as 2 Peter chapter 3 makes clear, His slowness to act is no evidence that He doesn't care about evil. His slowness to act is evidence that He is long-suffering and desiring to bring sinners to repentance. The fact that God hasn't acted as decisively as we would wish, (laughs) is an evidence of God's grace, not of his lack of concern about evil. And by the way, we could 
add many other sins to that as well. I didn't put this in my notes, but I, uh, I've got it in my 21 points. You know, this is a lot like sanctification. Can you imagine when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ? In fact, that text that we, uh, that we just read in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. <laughs> it's basically saying, you're now a new believer. You have learned to think a new way. You have embraced a new set of attitudes and values, and you need to live that out. But have you noticed that in the sanctification process, God doesn't bomb us with every single evil at one time? Aren't you glad that God, so to speak, pecks away <laughs> at, our, at, our, at our old nature and exposes one thing at a time? So why would we be surprised that God would deal with the consequences of sin, such as slavery, in some instantaneous manner? God will deal with evil in his own way, in his own time. You know where I got that? Habakkuk. Here's Habakkuk saying, Hey God, have you looked lately at what your people are doing? Why in the world haven't you dealt with this sin? God says, I know it's a, it's really a paraphrase. Really paraphrase. Relax, man. I got it covered. I got the Babylonians coming. And I'm going to clean house. Oh, hold it, God. Hold it. <laughs> that wasn't my plan. See, his problem was that he really did not give God sufficient credit for who he is. He had to come to terms with the sovereignty of God, the infinite wisdom of God, and God's sequencing of dealing with sin. I believe we see the same thing here. Here's a huge point. Our eternal status as believers in Jesus Christ gives us a whole new view of our temporal status in this world. People often turn to Galatians 3.28. There's neither slave nor free, you know, Gentile or Jew, whatever, uh, as male nor female. And, and they, they claim that as that means right now. All distinctions cease to exist now. No, they don't. That's why Paul gives instructions to slaves and slave masters, to women and their husbands, children and their parents. Those distinctions haven't gone away. What he's saying is your eternal standing with God, your eternal status, like we see in Ephesians chapter 1, your position in Christ forever is this. So if God chooses to leave you here and to let you suffer some things in this life for His glory and for the good of the gospel, what's the problem? Paul talks about the eternal weight of glory as opposed to the momentary burdens and sufferings of this life. That should be our point of view. So God says, look at the present in the light of eternity. Here's the last one and critical. Do you think God's not concerned about slavery? <laughs> when you come to First uh, Peter chapter 2, Peter talks to slaves about their abuse from cruel, I assume, unbelieving masters. And he says to them, 
you need to submit, not just to the kind ones, to the cruel ones. And your example for that is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who submitted to abuse greater than any man on the face of the earth has ever borne. And he bore that so that he might free you from slavery to sin. (laughs) Is God concerned about slavery? You bet. He's concerned about men enslaved by their passions, enslaved by Satan, enslaved by the bondage of this world. And Jesus came and died on the cross, bearing all of that reproach and abuse so that we may be free. I think you can rest assured that God cares about slavery. He just has a a better grasp of the kind of slavery he needs to attack first and foremost. Okay, next point. Did God get it wrong about shellfish? <laughs> this is this I, I admit I'm buying this from Dan Savage. Dan Savage says, if God got it wrong, if the word of God got it wrong about shellfish and slavery, then surely he got it wrong on sexuality. That's his argument. So, let's talk about shellfish. (laughs) Oysters, anyone? Uh, You know, I mean, here what we're doing is going back to Leviticus chapter 11, verses 9 through 12. This is the distinction that God makes between that which is clean food and that which is unclean food. And he says, in essence, if it is in the water and it has fins or scales... Eat it. <laughs> if it's in the water and doesn't have fins or scales, then it's unclean. Don't eat it. Now that text is a very interesting text because it says more than that, in my opinion. It says, these things God has determined are an abomination to Him. You therefore need to regard those as an abomination To you. And if they're an abomination to you, then you won't eat them. When my parents were in uh, Taiwan years ago, my dad was teaching a a young man then whose name was Johnny. He was teaching him English and he got to Matthew 16 and he got saved. But Johnny kept inviting my parents over for dinner. He said he had something very special for them. And my parents were sort of interested in what that might be. And lo and behold, it was a very special dog that he had been setting aside uh, for the meal. My mother, my mother said, oh, dogs are our friend. We don't eat dogs. Now, Knowing how my parents felt about eating dog, do you think it would have been wise or appropriate for Johnny to have them over for dinner and serve dog? I don't think so. If God says something is an abomination to him, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, if God says something is an abomination for him, then shouldn't that be enough for us to say, I'm laying off the stuff. So, no clams, no clam chowder, no oysters for Old Testament saints. Now, the argument went further. 
we know that there's nothing wrong with eating shellfish. God said no, but we know that there's nothing wrong. Therefore, God was irrational, illogical in his prohibition. Now, the inference, I think, and it's not there boldly, but I think it's there. I I think guys like Savage are saying this. God doesn't concern himself with an issue as big as slavery. Ah, That's huge, he says. God doesn't speak up to it. What in the world is God talking to us about shellfish for when he doesn't care about slavery? Isn't that being picky-unish? Why is God so into these little details and not into the big ones? I think maybe that's a piece of it. Now, if God can't get that right, then how can God possibly deal with matters as weighty as human sexuality? Okay, let's give some responses to the shellfish challenge. Some laws are clearly about what is evil or good. Do you not agree? The Ten Commandments shall not practice idolatry, shall not lie, shall not steal. Those are moral things. They have to do with sin. Thou shalt not commit adultery, sin. Some laws are sin definitions. But the distinction between clean and unclean is not, my friend. Clams and oysters are not sinful. They're not sinful. God just says they're unclean. Now, it would be a sin to eat what God has forbidden as unclean, but that doesn't make shellfish sinful. It makes disobedience sinful. But there's a purpose for those laws. In Leviticus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God makes it clear that he has a reason for those distinctions. God is bringing his people into the land of Canaan in the midst of rank pagans, would you not agree, who have all kinds of evils as a part of their culture, many of them sexual, certainly idolatry, and there is a relationship between the two. But when you look at that text, God says this, I am declaring these things to be unclean, I'm declaring these things to be out of bounds, and I'm also declaring certain things to be sin, so that you may have intimacy and fellowship with me. How could we be intimate and have fellowship with God if we deny the things that he has said he abhors? I should say, who practice the things that he abhors. How could we? So observing those things is the key to intimacy with God. The flip side of that is, observing those distinctions is the key to separation from those heathen cultures that are going to want to draw you in. And one of the ways you're going to get drawn in, folks, in that culture and even in ours, not as much, but even in ours, is around the dinner table. The people who you embrace in fellowship around the table has everything to do with your values 
and whatever. And what he's saying is, when I make these distinctions and my people cannot eat these foods, then my people cannot fellowship intimately with those who have heathen practices and beliefs. So intimacy with God, distance or separation from men who have sinful lifestyles. I'm getting some important stuff now. Some Levitical laws are related to public health. Some Levitical laws are related to public health. For example, the laws that pertain to quarantine, right? Now, I, I'm not a student of history. John could goof, do far better. But, but I'm told that in the t- days of the plague that was wiping out Europe, that they resorted to those laws and, and the quarantine to keep the disease from spreading even further and faster. So there are medical benefits to certain Levitical laws, not necessarily all of them. Here's what I don't ever hear anybody say. I'm sure somebody has, but I haven't heard them yet. Some of the Levitical laws are clearly arbitrary. Arbitrary. Do you understand what that means? There's no compelling reason to say it's clean or unclean. God just said it. (laughs) That's the way our kids think that we're always dealing with them. They think everything's arbitrary. Now, there are reasons for many things, but not reasons for everything in the law. In fact, that's what makes obedience to them a test. See, if we clearly saw that something had profound medical impact. Look at, look at what's happened, for instance, to smoking in our country. You know, people have become convinced that it, that it, that it has all kinds of uh, bad effects, and, and so many people have stopped. Because they can see, not, not that it's some moral issue, but that it's just a, a matter of physical good sense. But coming back to the arbitrary stuff, how about this? A woman who has a boy child is ceremonially unclean for seven days. A woman who has a girl child is ceremonially unclean for 14 days. Now, are you going to try and tell me that girl babies are less clean than boy babies? The girls I've seen around my house, I'll take their cleanness any day. Boys. Hey. There is no compelling evidence as to why it should happen other than God said so. There's the test. The test is, are we willing to obey God because He said so, whether we see the reason or not, whether there is a reason or not? It's just a test of obedience. And it's a test of who we believe God to be in relationship to us. It's a test of our submission to Him. Pork is unclean, but lamb and beef are clean. What just drives me nuts is Christians who try to prove somehow that these laws are really medical in orientation. Folks, I want to tell you, a chicken or or, uh, a piece of beef, a T-bone steak or whatever, is no more like, no less likely to be defiling and germ-ridden when left unrefrigerated 
than, than a piece of uh, lamb or pork. It, it, anything. It, it, is, it wasn't health laws. God simply said, this could be eaten, this could not be eaten. Those are the distinctions God has made. Those were the distinctions that separated his people. And I should remind you, New Testament, Jesus declares all foods to be clean. <laughs> they still didn't have refrigerators. God changed arbitrarily those rules. But he did it for a reason because now Jews and Gentiles have been brought together through Jesus Christ into one new man. They need to sit at the same table. That's why the arbitrary law was set aside. So the issue is our willingness to submit to distinctions God makes because he is God. And we are his slaves. So we've come full circle, so to speak. And we're really finding ourselves back at Genesis 2 and 3, are we not? Genesis 2 and 3, God basically says, all of this you may freely eat. This one thing, this one thing you cannot eat. The issue is whether we trust God and his prohibitions about that. Or whether we distrust God, as Satan implied, that somehow he's withholding something really good for us. The issue is whether we let God define the difference between good and evil by declaration, or whether we define it by picking a piece of fruit and finding out for ourselves. Genesis 2 and 3, we're back there. Does God have the right to define distinctions and declare good and evil. If he is God, then he does. And if he does have that right, then we have the obligation to obey him. Here's where it gets sticky. <laughs> you see, what I did, and this didn't happen, I wasn't really going this way initially, but... Paul kind of got to me when Tom was teaching in Romans. And, and uh, Paul has two things going. One is his message. The message is Gentiles are worthy of divine wrath. And B, but not as pleasant, so are Jews. Right? What I'm now fascinated by is Paul's method. Because Paul gets Jewish believers shaking their heads. Yes, those Gentiles are worthy of hell. But while those heads are still moving, he says, you too. See, what we've been talking about is the way in which the homosexual movement has distorted the word of God. One, by reinterpreting it. Two, by denying it outright altogether. I'm here to tell you, my friends, that happens in Christianity just like it does amongst that movement. I'm going to read you this. You know, I didn't think that we could learn a lot from homosexuals, but we ought to listen to them once in a while. Listen to this. This comes out of, uh, what is this, the Cathedral of Hope a website, Homosexuality and Christianity coming out resources. I'm not quite sure where the coming out part came. But then it says in a, in a fairly big title, 
It's okay to be gay because God loves you just the way you are. Hmm. And here's what he says. In our Judeo-Christian society, the documents collectively known as the Bible serve as the primary guide on most issues. It's interesting that many Christians take literally the references to homosexual acts while interpreting other texts with great flexibility. One person reported listening to a nationally known woman speaker in her campaign against homosexuality. She spent quite a bit of time quoting impressively from Leviticus. The listener accepted much of what the speaker said until he realized that by Levitical standards, the crusader herself had broken many biblical laws. She spoke in church, 1 Corinthians 14.34. She taught men, 1 Timothy 2.12. She was wearing a dress made of cotton and polyester. I'm not going down that trail. <laughs> my, point, my point is simply this. We, as believers are inclined to reinterpret clear biblical texts that we do not like and that do not give us freedom or endorsement to do things which God has said is wrong. We go back and reinterpret. I've watched it over and over in the past uh, number of years. People that I knew that took a firm stand on Scripture and all of a sudden they're doing a reinterpret job. Why? I'll tell you why. Because culture doesn't Embrace it, and many Christians are looking for the back door. So, here we are with slaves, shellfish, and submission. So let me go to submission. Actually, savage didn't, but many do. That, my friend, I think is the Achilles heel for many evangelicals in terms of their dealing with scripture. For example, the teaching of scripture, I would say the clear teaching of scripture on the fact that men are to lead in the church and not women. How how come the church doesn't seem to embrace that universally? Because they've reinterpreted those texts and sometimes not as creatively as the pro-homosexual movement has. Um, here's one. What about what the scripture says about women teaching men, not only in the church? I told you I was going to make everybody mad today. What about the seminary? What about the seminaries? Here's where men are being taught how to understand and interpret scripture. And somehow now our seminaries are saying, it's okay to have women professors. Because we're not the church. Who gave them an exemption? I I don't see it, my friends. I don't see it. Here you have tap dancing exegetically in, in in the very place that's to teach people how to expound and interpret God's word. That baffles me. Well, here's another one. Told you I'd make everybody mad. Dispensationalism. Jesus said in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I could turn to page after page where people say, oh, well, that, what Jesus said here is another dispensation. That doesn't apply to us. Tell Jesus that. He's the one who said, 
all that I commanded you. We gotta, we gotta get serious about scripture, friend. Or otherwise, we're no different than the people we criticize for abusing the scriptures. Here's another one. And, and I, I think I've told you about this before, but I was invited one time to speak to a group of, uh, psychologists. Christian psychologists. And I spoke on psychiatric prostitution. And I said this. Since when do you get a pass? on God's word in terms of you supporting and helping somebody through a painful divorce. When that divorce is sin in God's eyes and in the church, it ought to be dealt with exactly that way. Why a pass? Because we've done some fancy footwork with the scriptures. So I'm saying simply this. While we abuse other people of dealing loosely with Scripture, we better tighten up ourselves. We better tighten up ourselves. What we say to them about their handling of Scripture will carry no weight unless they see in us a commitment to follow God's Word, especially where it runs contrary to our desires, contrary to our wishes, contrary to our emotions, contrary to our preferences sometimes contrary to our reasoning. God's word is just that, spoken to us by a sovereign God. And the question is, will we obey it or will we not? So I ask you this. In your life right now and in mine, what are the soft points in my theology? What are the soft points in yours? Where... what? <laughs> I've said before, when I play golf, nobody ever invites me back. Never. I take it back. My father, bless him. Even he, I think, would have avoided it if he could have. But I do know one word very well. Mulligan. Now, mulligan means, you you know, you have the ball out in the toolies. You can pick it up and toss it back out. Theoretically, nobody looks. You get a chance to goof. So what are your mulligans? What are your biblical mulligans? What are mine? What are the things that God's word is absolutely crystal clear and we say to ourselves, I don't really like that. I don't really want to go there. I think God wants us to deal with our mulligans. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to cherish it. Help us to submit to it. Help us to embrace it whether we agree with it or not. Help us not to find fancy ways to get around it or blatant ways to deny it. For Jesus' sake, the sake of the gospel and the sake of those who are lost. Amen.